Blog Talk Radio. Quiet, please. with filmmakers where we discuss everything film and television. Here on Movie Beat, you learn what to do and what not to do when it comes to making movies and TV. We will talk to everyone behind the scenes and in front of the camera, and I'll provide you with guests and the information you're going to want to have, whether you're a filmmaker or a fan. And so now let's move behind the scenes here at Movie Beat. Uh, first of all, I want to say that if you're listening for the first time, you can subscribe to the uh, Movie Beat website. The official site is rexsikes.com, and there's an RSS feed right there at the welcome page. So subscribe, uh, fi- navigate the website. There's great information on all sorts of things, articles, upcoming events, casting crew information, and, of course, these interviews. These interviews, there's over 80 interviews right there archived on the website that you're going to want to go back and listen to each and every one. Uh, they are a wealth of information. They've been called a master class in filmmaking, so you're sure, surely going to want to be uh, up to date with all of the interviews. And w- another way to do that is to subscribe at the iTunes store, Direct Sykes Movie Beat, the podcast, and then you will always get each new interview as after they air live, of course, but each new interview as they occur and uh, – it doesn't take up much space. You know, I like to listen to them when I'm driving. You know, I, I put them on my phone. They're on my computer. When I have a moment, I'm sitting somewhere waiting. I plug in my headphones, and I listen to the interviews that I've even conducted with friends and, and, and colleagues uh, because I learn just as much as anybody. So uh, be sure to do that. Uh, you can become a friend and a fan of, of uh, Rex Sykes Movie Beat at Facebook. There's a group there, and uh, and there's a fan page. I'm going to tell you that the uh, Northern California Screenwriter and Film uh, can, uh, Expo is coming up March 26th to 28th, and uh, Kevin Sorbo's uh, charity, uh, A World Fit for Kids, is in Ju- is June 10th and 11th in Las Vegas, uh, the Celebrity uh, Golf Tournament. You can find out more about these and read a great article on film financing um, at the Hot and Fun blog on uh, RexSykes.com. Uh, there's a fundraiser coming up tonight for an uh, actor who was stabbed in Milwaukee. Uh, you're going to want to find out about that. That's uh, 7 p.m. tonight at the Alchemist Theater. Go to the Hot News blog to learn more about that. Also about the Women in Film uh, party coming up in Chicago. Uh, that was last night. You can learn more about that. But they've got another event coming up on Tuesday, uh, the Midwest Film Organization. The Field Film Fest is uh, February 6th. That's Saturday at UW-Waukesha, so read about that. And Beloit International Film Fest is the 18th to the 21st, all at the Hot News blog on RexSykes.com. Uh, people have asked me you know, about my projects. We're still working on producing a pilot and the uh, feature film that we're working on. Um, you know, is is all in development right now. Uh, but if you want to see me, I'm doing Dinner Theater. It opens next Friday, same night as the uh, the night before the Field Fest, February 5th. You can go to memoriesballroom.com. That's M-E-M-O-R-I-E-S ballroom.com. Uh, the play is called Baggage. If you're in the area, be sure to check it out. Uh, there's dinner if you want or just the play. Uh, but it's a fun little romantic 
comedy. So uh, please do join us. I have a new Twitter account. It is Rex Sykes Movie Beat, but the last word is abbreviated. It is R E X M O V I E B R E X S I K E S M O V I E B T. So be sure to come and follow us at. Uh, at Twitter, and I want to thank everybody who does retweet about my guests, who reposts information or puts it on their wall on Facebook or on MySpace, or you email your friends and your family and your industry connections about these interviews because we are trying to spread the word and and have other filmmakers benefit from the information that's that is uh, imparted by guests like my guest today. Um, I've got a lot of great guests coming up. Uh, we just had Brian Krauss talk about acting and a career. He was Leo on Charmed. I, I enjoyed his interview, and I enjoyed so many of the recent ones. Sam Oster is coming back. He's a writer, director, cameraman. Jackie Birch, casting director, has been here before. We'll be back talking more about casting and sharing some of her experiences. Christy Swanson. Uh, you probably know her best from uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She's an actor, but she's in my guest movie. Uh, what if? And so she'll be. Uh, he, you know, he's talked about her. This is Dallas Jenkins. He's going to be on in just a couple minutes. Uh, but uh, she co-starred with Kevin Sorbo uh, in in uh, What If, directed by Dallas. And so she's going to be here Wednesday, February second. You're going to want to tune in. Peter Marshall is back with the director's series, uh, part two. Nick Mancuso will be coming back talking about writing and acting and directing. Reed Martin of The Real Truth will be back for the series that we're doing with him, Ted Hope, and so many more. Uh, so go to the interviews blog at uh, rexsykes.com, and you'll see all of the lineup of the guests, and you'll see all of the archived guests as well. They're kind of mixed together, but go ahead and click on their names and read their biographies and, and click on the links and listen to the uh, MP3 files that come up if you want to listen right there on the website. So uh, that's the new information that I have to impart to you, What I want to do is bring on my guest. I had a, a wonderful time chatting with him and learning about movie making last time. It's Dallas Jenkins. He directed the movie that we've been talking about with Christy and Kevin, uh, as well as other movies. Dallas, are you there? I'm here. Thanks so much for having me on. So glad to have you back. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I appreciate it. How is uh, how is post coming? We're really almost done. In fact, uh, when I get off this interview, I'm going to go straight to our... Uh, production office and uh, do the color correction so we'll be finishing up the look of the film uh today so uh should, you know the whole thing should be done within a week or so well and we're going to be talking about the look of film so that's that's awesome what i would like to do and i, I didn't discuss this with you beforehand but if, if you'd be willing to to come back and talk about the post-production process as well you know i mean when you're in that dark little room doing the editing and working with the editor and doing color correction and things like that that maybe on another show when you have time uh, come sure. back and we can talk about cutting it together, as well as all sorts of other things about movie making that that you know you, we might want to explore as as time goes by. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Sorry, and I sure can't say no on the air now. So, <laughs> yeah, that's a good good strategy to future. Yeah. Okay. Well, all right. You 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 uh, exposed my ploy, and I uh, right. But uh, right. <laughs> anyway, um, well, let, let's dive just right into it. Um, we were going to talk about how you know you achieve a look with movies and and in television, for example. I mean, there's lots of things. I mean, and I I, I want you free reign to explore it. But I mean, you can tell one show from another show or one from movie from another movie. If, if you're on an episode of X Files, you immediately know it's X Files. You don't confuse it with Friends, for example. I mean, right. and while that may be a you know a an extreme example, you know, there's CSI Miami, and that has a different look than um, The Mentalist. So. There is a way of creating a look for a series. There's ways of creating looks for movies. Uh, 
But please, just uh, I'll let you dive in and, and address this as, as however you'd like to start. Well, there's a couple different uh, facets to developing the, the, the visual look in terms of cinematography. Uh, there's the simple, the surface level, which is we want this to look bright or we want it to look sharp and crisp or we want it to look more soft or we want it to look darker, um, you know, that j just based on, um, you know, the, the, the simple taste of the, of the you know, the, the producer and the, and the cinematographers. Uh, for instance, you know, CSI Miami, CSI New York, those series are very, very crisp, very clean, um, and they look different from shows like 24 and Friday Night Lights, which are more, you know, a raw look, um, less um, extreme lighting. Um, they use more natural light, um, whereas, you know, CSI is all, you know, I mean, it looks like a Michael Bay film. All the, you know, it's like sometimes you'll be standing, you know, you'll see the actor standing in a room and it looks like it's blue and you know, or green, and you're saying, what in the world, you know, I've never been in a room that's that blue. And that's, they're, they're not trying to be raw and naturalistic. They're trying to be slick. Um, and that, that's part of the overall feel of sexiness and, and uh, fast-paced, uh, you know, uh, you know, a sharp, uh, crisp look that they want to, uh, you know, they want to uh, portray. And then, uh, you know, for instance, X-Files, you know, very dark. Um, they, you know, they wanted to emphasize the mystery and, the, you know, the, the, so the shadows uh, on the screen kind of represent the shadows of, of uh, you know, conspiracy and, and mystery that the show is trying to come, you know, trying to portray as well. So um, there's that. And then there's the emotional aspect of it, which is, um, you know, I actually uh, utilized a lot of this in my film, What If, is, you know, matching the color and the, uh, the lighting to whatever mood or emotion you're trying to portray. Um, so, you know, there's actual, you know, psychologists, you know, have, have actually done studies on, you know, what different colors represent and, and, uh, and also just the simple fact of the matter, for instance, when you see a romantic comedy, uh, everything is very well lit. I mean, you know, if, if they're in a big room, the whole entire room is lit all the way to the back of the room. Um, whereas if, when you're doing a drama, uh, something more serious, uh, it, you know, there's more pools of light. Uh, and and the, 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 this, this impacts the production design, the colors that are chosen on, you know, for the walls, uh, the, the amount of time that's spent outside or inside, uh, the color of the, of the clothes that they're wearing. But it starts with um, just you know, deciding with the cinematographer, are we going to emphasize a bright, happy uh, look? Are we going to emphasize a crisp, sharp look? Are we going to emphasize a dark, moody look? Whatever that is, that's decided from the beginning, and then every decision uh, falls from that, you know, all the way down to the to the wardrobe. Well, what it demonstrates, I think, is is that you, as the director, or the storyteller, need to know the story, and you have had to have made some considerations as to how you want to best present it. And then you communicate that to you know your cinematographer. You discuss what's possible, and you work with this lighting person. And, and and depending on their expertise and and everything, I mean, you you then come up with the the lighting schemes and the color schemes and the wardrobe schemes. And uh, I, I mean, it, it, what it suggests is all that advanced preparation that is required in order to successfully pull this off, as opposed to just putting a camera somewhere and shooting a movie. Yeah, and that's something that I, I, probably the biggest difference for me between my previous film, Midnight Clear, and this current film in terms of my growth as a filmmaker is is that advanced planning 
of the look. Uh, you know, I mean, Midnight Clear looks good, and I'm and I'm proud of it. But I didn't I didn't go into that film with a specific um, and and detailed plan for the look. I, I was I I I, you know, I kind of put all that in the hands of my cinematographer. Um, who was who was fantastic, and you know, you I think in general it's a good idea to give your cinematographer some rein to uh, you know to kind of come up with some of his ideas, be, you know, his or her ideas, because they're like as I said on our last interview, the people that you bring on to head up various departments should should be better at their job than you are. That said, um, each department has its own individual uh, preferences and styles, and it's up to the you know the director to go into the movie having a unifying um, style and a unifying theme and a unifying look. Uh, it's not the job of the departments to meet together to find that what that look should be. So on Midnight Clear, I didn't necessarily have that as much. I was concentrated much more on the story and the characters, and, and, I, and I didn't try to unify that to the look of the film, and I should have. Uh, and, and so I made sure that on What If I was actively involved uh, far in advance and figuring out, how you know what? How did I want to tell this story visually, uh, not just emotionally, and matching the emotions to the visuals? And what ends up happening is uh, it not only is just better artistically and better visually, but it ends up informing many of the decisions that are made in terms of character and and acting and uh, and emotion, because you've 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 got a blueprint that you're following. So I'm on set working with an actor and. And uh, maybe he or she has a particular idea, um, and I can go back in my mind to, you know, this particular scene, this particular moment in the film, this particular uh, direction that I'm wanting to go, and say, well, actually, you know, in in in, in context, it, you know, when I'm looking at this particular part of the movie, we're going for a much more particular, you know, I, I'm just you know throwing this out as an example, we're going for a much more uh, sad. Uh, you know, emotion for these for this you know ten minute chunk of the film, and so I don't want you to be too uh, fast paced in your movements because we want to kind of match the you know the moroseness of the of, of the of the scene, uh, and and you know so communicating to your actors and to to the uh, you know to even to the writer can oftentimes be informed by what you've already decided in terms of look, and so having that unifying theme throughout, matching the visuals to the emotion. Uh, ends up giving you a safety net when you're, you know, maybe maybe when you're confused about something, or maybe when someone has an idea that you hadn't thought of. So I'm going to ask you a not necessarily a fair question. How many pages was your script? Uh, I think it was 100. And, if I remember correctly, 104, 100, 103, or 104. And, and approximately how many scenes? I mean, you know, that you would shoot. Oh well, that you know, uh, that that of course changes in every film. I, I would I would you know say that we you know we probably, in terms of, um, a scene meaning that you know you're you know you're in a different location. I, I would say there's probably. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, no, yeah, I'm just saying you know in terms of you know a master shot setup. You know. The, yeah, yeah. Uh, I would say probably about. You know, a, a little, a little around a hundred. I mean, you know, there's okay. because some some sometimes scenes last four pages, and then other times there's six sure. there's six scenes in one page because you're you know you're doing a montage or whatever. So I would say it, it was about a hundred or so. Right, and, and and I apologize for this, but I mean, but my point to the listeners is that you're trying to coordinate something over a hundred different 
scenes. I mean, you're, right. you're, you're dealing with your lighting in each and every scene. You're dealing with your cinematography. You're dealing with color. You're dealing with actors. You're dealing with wardrobe. But thematically, you know, in order from, from start to finish of your movie, as you piece it together, shoot it together out of sequence, you know, you, you're, you know, you've got this game plan for how each scene should look in the overall process. And that is an amazing part of movie making. Right. Uh, Steven Soderbergh says that, you know, he, when he's making a movie, he reads the whole script probably once a week or so while, while he's shooting because it, it reminds him of, you know, the, the, the whole process. Because you shoot a movie out of sequence anyway. You don't shoot the movie in order of the script. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you shoot, you shoot it in order based on actor schedules and location schedules and whatnot. So, you know, it's, it, it can be easy to kind of get lost in the, each individual scene that you're shooting and forget about the unifying direction, you know, of the, of the overall. And that's, that's especially true if you're not storyboarding everything in advance. I don't storyboard. Um, uh, you know, mo- you know, it's it, it's essential for action directors, especially, but even other directors like to storyboard. Some don't. I don't necessarily storyboard uh, just because I, I feel like it's, it, you know, for me, it's a little bit too constrictive. But right. I do definitely each, you know, the night before each day of shooting, um, I map out our shot list, which is where we go through each scene that we're shooting that day, and I talk about the different shots that we're going to do. You know, that's d- given to the crew members at the beginning of the day. So they have an idea of, of, of where we're going. And that, again, provides a nuts and bolts blueprint. But it, it, it reminds me, um, before I kind of get lost in the shuffle of that day, um, you know, okay, where are we going? Where are we in this script? You know, we're on day five right now. Um, you know, we're shooting a scene that takes place three-fourths of the way into the movie, followed by a scene that takes place one-third of the way into the movie. Um, you know, I don't want to lose sight of the emotional direction, but I certainly don't want to lose sight of the visual direction either. So, you know, the, the, it helps if the crew knows, you know, for, these, for this particular scene, uh, if they know in advance, uh, for this particular scene, we're going with this color scheme and we're going with this, you know, level of mood. And so uh, that informs every crew member because, uh, you know, it informs what lights they bring off the truck and what, you know, what... Uh, you know how many how many angles they're going to be using in a particular scene, where they're going to set up. So it's all you know having that plan in advance uh, makes everything easier. Well, that's amazing. Now let me ask you this: How uh, you know you've got all these scenes, you've got all these setups, you've got this theme. Uh, you know, I assume that you 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 do more than get together. I mean, and I know that you do from what you've said, but you get you do more than just simply discuss with your cinematographer, go, I want a, a hot, bright look for this, or I want a moody, dark look for the movie. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you, you have to you have to plan it out so that if in the daytime uh, you're shooting a scene and at nighttime you're shooting a scene, you still thematically are correct. I mean, is my question making sense? That Yes. That, so how do you communicate that? I mean, in other words, how you, you, you say you select the look, and then how do you, how do you discuss... Or how do you communicate which ways these scenes will be shot? Because like, what you said a moment ago is you know, it informs what lights you take off the truck or what colors you're going to be using in the sets or what kind of wardrobe. You know. Yeah, I, I don't know uh, the, the details of each lens, and I don't know the details of right. each light and how they work. Some directors you know, came from a technical background. Sure. I didn't. So you know, my, my, the, direct, the cinematographer's job is to execute what I communicate. So right. let me give you an example for what if. Um, in what if we um, the, the the story is of a guy who 
is living a high-powered businessman's life, a fast-paced materialistic life in, a, in, in the city, and uh, similar to you know, It's a Wonderful Life or the Family Man movies like that, he gets an opportunity to see what his life would have looked like had he made a different choice 15 years ago. So an angel comes along in the form of a mechanic and says, I'm going to show you, you, know, your, your, you know, your other reality that would have taken place if had you made a different choice. So he's immediately snapped into this new reality which exists in the suburbs. He's now a family man. He's got a, you know, he's got a wife and kids. He's a pastor of a local church. He doesn't have much money. You know, he's driving a minivan instead of a, a Mercedes-Benz. So I wanted to make the difference between his suburban life and his city life extremely uh, stark. I wanted there to be a significant difference visually. So we decided, you know, that when we shot the life in the city and the, in the high-powered businessman life, uh, we were going to use cold colors, you know, blues, grays, blacks. Um, and when we were in the suburban life, we are going to use warmer colors, you know, browns, reds, oranges, yellows, you know. Um, and so, and then with the lighting, you know, much, much more crisp, much more, um, you know, sleek when we're in the city, much more raw, um, much, you know, a little bit more gentle in the, in the uh, you know, in the suburbs. So, from the beginning, when I meet with the costume director, uh, you know, the wardrobe person, I say, okay, so, you know, for Kevin Sorbo's wardrobe, you know, when, it's, when he's wearing his suits and when all the actors in these scenes, I want sharp, you know, I, I want sharpness. I want the women to be wearing, um, you know, pantsuits and, and, and skirts that are very crisp and um, the colors need to be, you know, on this scale of, you know, blue and black and whatnot. Um, and then when we get to the suburban life, uh, again, I want Kevin wearing, you know, reds, oranges, browns, again, the same kind of thing. Um, and the same principle is applied to the production designer. I say, um, I want, um, you know, the walls and the furniture and uh, the, um, you know, the, the background to have the same, you know, to match the same thing that I've been saying to the cinematographer and the wardrobe person. So, um, so when we get to those days, um, you know, the cinematographer and the wardrobe person, or, you know, the wardrobe person, of course, knows, kind of already has mapped out what exactly they're going to wear, but the cinematographer hasn't exactly chosen every light and every lens in advance. So we get to that day, and he says, all right, where are we, where are we shooting today? Okay, we're shooting the scene in the office building um, okay, yeah, uh, are we shooting handheld? Are we shooting um, on, on uh, the tripod? Okay, are we, um, you know, are, uh, okay, yeah, this is the scene. You know, he's kind of working through it, and I'm saying, yeah, this is the scene where he's, you know, fast-paced, so he's going to be wearing this. So he looks at, he sees the wardrobe, he sees the production design, and remembers what we discussed about these particular scenes. So it all kind of, on the day of shooting, all kind of comes together into one magical, you know, moment, and then you look through the lens of the camera, you look on the monitor, and you go, oh, wow, this looks blue. This is what I wanted. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, and, and, and the difference between that look on that day and then the look, you know, maybe two hours later when you shift to the suburb, suburban house is dramatically different. And it's, you know, it's, it's even though it's the same movie and the same people working on it. Well, I love the level of detail at which you're explaining this because I think, you know, I mean, the idea is that there's there are so many details that go into you know successfully making a movie, and the attention to the detail, you know, as as your 
explaining to us, the listeners, you know, is exquisite. I mean, it's it's wonderful. I mean, when people uh, take their craft and their art so seriously as to say, you know, I, all these different elements make a big difference in the experience of the viewer, and and so I'm choosing these based on the kind of experience I want to give the viewer, and I and I'm and I'm telling this story. I mean, you even said, you know, earlier about you know they they've done they and they have done psychological studies on the effect of people, uh, the effect of colors on people, and their emotions. So. Uh, I love it. I mean, I, uh, you know, uh, and and I like that we're discussing it at this level, and that you're giving the kind of examples that you are, because I think it helps people, especially new filmmakers and even and even seasoned filmmakers, you know, wrap their brain around the um, the importance of these kinds of things. And I think that understanding how movies achieve that look, as you're ex- ex- expressing. Um, it's just a great thing to know. I mean, you know, yeah. because you know, you, you know, you look at it, you go, "Wow, that that looks different than that." How did they do it? Yeah, and and I, you know, to be honest, I think the average film that you go see in the movie in the movie theater uh-huh. uh, has has made these decisions, but it's usually pretty subtle. And yeah. the average audience member doesn't think about that when they're watching a movie. They want to be swept away in the story. They don't want to be noticing the colors of the walls. Um, and oftentimes we say. Um, when, you know, when we're making a decision about uh, where to place a particular piece of production design, um, or maybe even we notice a slight mistake. And a lot of times you'll hear on the set someone say, oh, if the audience notices that, we're lo- we've lost them already, meaning if they're paying attention to some of the things in the background, that means they're not interested in the story anyway. And that's true. Um, but you know, I, I, on the other hand, tend to want to make each of my decisions actually matter. And so, for instance, for me, uh, I didn't necessarily want to make the difference between the suburban life and the, and the, uh, the city life very subtle. I wanted to make it a strong difference because I think you know, for part of it's just a, if we're going to put this much time into it, I'd like, I'd like it to ac- actually make a difference. But not every movie uh, you know, is that way. But sure. you know, even on a subtle subconscious level, um, the audience, um, as we talked about in our last interview, the audience wants to like the movie. They want to be swept away. They want to willingly suspend their disbelief. But when something is off, they, they know it. Even if they can't express why, something doesn't feel right. Something doesn't feel like the, the, direct, the, 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 the filmmakers are ahead of them in terms of where the story is going or, or, or what kind of preparation went into this. And so, you know, um, Pixar, the, the, you know, the company that, that does all those great you know, animated features, says uh, they have a phrase for how, how for their attention to detail and they say we sand the other side of the drawer meaning that when, when you know when you see a, a you know a, a a closed drawer in one of their movies and someone you know pulls out the the the, the cabinet or whatever they, they, their their point is we've actually sanded the part of the drawer you can't even see and of course you know again they're talking about animation of course they're not actually sure. physically sanding the drawer but their point is we've paid attention to everything, even the things that you can't even see, because you know, we want to make sure that nothing ever slips by, that nothing slips through the cracks. And, uh, and that maybe even on those things that they're worried about, the audience wouldn't have known anyway. However, that mindset, applying that mindset to the whole cast and crew shows that you care about every detail and that ends up impacting positively the, the, the larger things that do end up mattering to the audience. 
Absolutely, absolutely. You know what, Dallas? I'm going to take a short break, and then we'll be right back. And I just the break is just enough to say you're listening to Rex Sykes Movie Beat. The official website is r e x s i k e s dot com. Go there, look at the different blogs, hot and fun, hot news, hot news, a cast and crew, with Rex rants, and and all the the interviews. Uh, check that out. If you hear of something coming up in terms of a, a party, a premiere, an event, a workshop. Uh, before I do, please feel free to email me through the website, and I'll uh, investigate it, try and get it up in a timely fashion. Uh, and now back to Dallas Jenkins, director of What If and other movies. Dallas, um, I- I'm going to posit something here for a second, and that is I'm a big fan of invisible filmmaking, meaning that I think all of your work needs to be invisible, except in rare occasions. I don't, I don't want to be aware of the camera. I don't want to know that people are walking in and out of sets. I want to think that the story is the story and that I'm caught up in it. And for me as a filmmaker, when I see a movie that I forget all the technical components and I'm just caught up in the lives of the characters or the action of the story, and, you know, and, and I'm gripped by it, uh, you know, or I want to cry or I'm laughing or I'm angry, you know, or I'm on the edge of my seat, then I think it's a successful movie. And I think that today, especially today, with uh, the different ways in which we see movies, it's not like you know, going into the 20s or the 30s, and you and there were there wasn't television, there wasn't the internet. And you went into a movie house, and the and the the lights went down, and it was similar in some respects to, to going into a live theater. But you, you, we've got a lot of things competing for that story. I mean, it might be that the seats are uncomfortable. Uh, it could be that today's audiences now talk and text and cell phone through movies. I mean, it's 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 different than. <laughs> you know, way back when. And not only that, but we pay attention to different things. I could be watching how the acting is and somebody else would be watching, you know, the cinematography or somebody else is listening to the story or paying attention. So there's a lot competing. So when you express the, the attention to detail and the attention to, to these elements and you say, okay, you know, in this movie I, I, I made it more of a stark difference than I might in another movie. But you're doing it because you're wanting to you're wanting to grab the audience. You're wanting to get their attention and it sounds like in an invisible fashion you 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 want subconsciously you want you want them riveted but you you're not hitting them in the face with it right well and and frank capra was uh, emphatic about that and he spoke about this back in the 30s and 40s and it's still true today which is you know he says the audience just isn't interested in all the things that some of the intellectual uh you know film students are and some of the you know the, the directors who think it's you know it's it's important to make their mark on the story or on the film with their with their filmmaking prowess, um, and he just says that's just not something that the average audience member is interested in, and he's right. Um, I, yeah, when when I even when I, earlier when I said I want this to matter to the audience, uh, I was not referring to the external part of it. I I don't want the audience to be thinking, ooh, this scene looks blue. Oh, this scene looks green. Um, you know, I do, I want them wrapped up in the story, um, but I what, but I do want them to feel like subconsciously we're in a different place and a different um, you know emotional space uh, in this particular scene than we were ten minutes ago. Um, you know, I want their their eyes and their ears and their hearts to be moving in a direction that I want them to move. Uh, so the audience members don't want to know what the director is doing, but they want to feel secure that the director is doing something. And so, you know, if if from from the the opening frame of the film, um, you know, you you know, you're you're confident, and the story is confident, and uh, things are crisp and tight, then the audience goes. It's like they they subconsciously breathe a sigh of relief, 
and they go, okay, good, we, we're in good hands. Um, and that's what the greatest filmmakers do. Um, but there are filmmakers who, again, make their living based on style, um, and, you know, and, and they have the, all the tricks of the trade, and they are kind of, in a sense, uh, you know, showing off uh, some of their cinematic prowess. Uh, those filmmakers tend to not be as commercially successful, um, but they're still great filmmakers, and I still learn a lot from them, and, they, and they, that's just what they do. And, and the people who go see their movies are going to see their movies for different reasons than the average audience member. Uh, I'm, I'm choosing to be a little bit more of a commercial filmmaker, trying to bring maybe an artistic edge to that, um, uh, particularly in the faith-based world. Mo, mo, you know, most of my movies have a, uh, a Christian or faith-based uh, theme in them, and the audience that's in that market uh, tends to be a little bit less um, interested in some of the more like the, some of the more Hollywoodish type stuff, you know, particularly in the in the uh, kind of the artsy, independent, you know, uh, cineast world. Um, and so, you know, I'm I, I'm I'm a little bit less interested in some of those things, those bells and whistles. Um, but I don't necessarily look down on them either, and I think that they also have their place in in art. Awesome, awesome. I say. Excellent answer. I, I've got a question, and, and you know maybe you know a cinematographer's question, but but what what did you shoot on? Did you shoot uh, digital or film or I don't. We shot this film on on the red camera, which um, is gaining a lot of popularity. It's a it's an extreme high definition uh, camera. It's 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 not HD per se. It's its own. It's kind of its own animal. But it's what it's per, for now kind of the closest thing to film without actually being film, or at least looks-wise. Um, I mean, there's some big movies that are shot on it. You know, I know Angels and Demons, the sequel to uh, Da Vinci Code, was shot on the red camera. Um, and then they have even more bells and whistles in terms of lighting to make it look even more like film than we could. But uh, the red, I, I'm a big fan of of uh, digital filmmaking, uh, at least in the higher end. I don't, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't shoot on, on like, you know, tape, I mean, or, 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 or like a, you know, a DV camera, but... I, I like I like the new kind of the new age. Um, I'm not necessarily old fashioned about film because film really is it's more expensive first of all, but it also is just more time consuming. Uh, when when I'm on the set uh, and we're shooting on the red, the image that I see in the monitor is ne- nearly identical to the ultimate image we'll see at the end. Whereas with film, um, when you're shooting on film and you're looking at the monitor, um, it's been it's 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 like it's a digital capture of what the film camera is actually seeing. So I'm not actually looking at the monitor and seeing what I'm going to be seeing in the editing room. So there's that also just the speed um, in which we can move with the red cameras, um, not having to, you know, load the, load the film into the cameras, also being able to, um, to, to roll longer because with film, you you know, film is so expensive. You want to, stop rolling when as soon as the scene's over, whereas I like to maybe keep it going a little bit longer, make a couple of adjustments while we're going. So um, so there's a lot of you know advantages to it. But uh, for the big the bigger budget movies tend to still stick with film just because it, it still has that that look that hasn't quite been matched by the uh, the digital world. Well and the follow up to the question with the the camera and without Making it personal to anyone, and it may or may not have been in, uh, in, uh, something you did on your movie or not. Uh, but sometimes people shoot, you know, different people with different lenses. They may shoot with a, you know, a softer look for uh, an actress to make her look younger or 
uh, just give her softer or light her a particular way to make her look different than they might light a man in a, in a particular fashion to make him look more onerous or or more handsome and more charming. So, uh, did you, do, in terms of the look of the movie, do you have any any anything like that that you may or may not have done? Certainly, I think. I mean, I think you not only you choose different lenses, but you choose different angles. I mean, uh, you know, you, you oftentimes notice in certain films if you pay close attention that you know when an actor when you're wanting an actor to appear more imposing um you shoot him from below if you want to have an actor appear more um you know timid or uh kind of intimidated or uh in a difficult position you'll shoot him from above to make him look a little bit smaller or like uh you know you, you that's that's a very common uh tra- trait and I I did a little bit of that in this film um you know you oftentimes for some it's hard to explain but sometimes just different lenses work better for different actors they make them you know different different lens looks makes a certain actor look more attractive uh once you're in a scene for instance in a dialogue scene um <coughs> excuse me you will you you know and you're going back and forth between the two actors you pretty much want to use the same lens um because uh you know it's just it can be disorienting if if uh you know you're yeah. You see one actor who's talking, and 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 they're, um, you know, closer into the to the camera, or they, you know, you, they're, you know, you're shooting them from waist up, and then the other actor you're shooting from chest up or from from feet up, uh, you know, that can that can be kind of disorienting. So you kind of want to shoot, you know, the, the angles can be different, um, but for the most part, you want the lens to be the same and the lighting, simply because when you're in a particular room. Uh, and, you know, you've shot your master shot, and everyone kind of knows what the room looks like, it would be awkward if you shoot one actor, you know, completely shadowed with kind of a green tint to them, and then you shoot the other actor, uh, you know, with a, you know, bright, happy look. And, and so that, that you know, that, that would be disorienting as well. But there's certainly, um, you know, you different lenses tend, maybe, maybe tend to look some, make, make, make someone look a little bit uh, more attractive, or if you want, less attractive. Um, that's that's much more of a of of a feel thing. It's it's hard to kind of uh, plan ahead going going into it, saying, "Oh, blonde girls always get, you know, a 35 lens, and and uh, brunettes always get an 18 millimeter lens." And uh, you know, uh, there's no hard and fast rules to it. But that oftentimes just kind of you know, you kind of just happens on the set and when your discussions with the cinematographer. Now, and in going back to you know, not not switching lenses, do you do you, do you pretty much mean the same focal length between the two of them? I mean, when you're shooting. Yes, uh, you know, I once once you're in that dialogue scene. Now again, you you shoot, um, for instance, you shoot your master shot, which is the shot that includes almost everybody in the frame, and it's kind of your 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 safety net. Um, you, you know, you usually want a wider shot to kind of get everyone under, to understand the geography of the room. Then you move in for your close-ups, and there's usually, um, you know, a medium shot, which is where, let's say, it's two people talking, so you're going to be over one person's shoulder, and you can see that person's shoulder and their head, and, and you can see kind of the, the waist up of the actor that you're focusing on. And then oftentimes you'll move in even closer for, and you shoot the scene again um, with, you know, tight on that person from chest high or maybe even in some cases extreme close-up. And so that, but you need to do the same thing with the other actor as well. So in general you want, you know, the actors to be the same distance from the camera. You want the lenses to be uh, the same, you know, for, for the most part, um, you know, so that you at least have those options and so that, you know, again, it's not too disorienting. 
Um, but again, there are times when you're just, you know, you're trying to communicate a particular thing, like, you know, this particular uh, character is imposing, so you shoot him from below and you shoot the other character from above, and maybe you position him in the room so that one character is more in shadows than the other character. Um, you know, there's there's different things like that that you do, but for the most part, you want to keep a uniform theme in in each particular scene. Oh, that's that's great. That's fantastic. I appreciate that. Now, there are some actors, especially people who've done a lot of acting, who know what their best side is or what their best angle is. And sometimes, you know, we might encounter somebody who goes, "Well, you can only shoot me from the right." I mean, yeah, you, that that that's less common nowadays, but it, it it certainly happens. But a lot of times, again, actors, the good actors, and the actors who um, I think are probably the more commercial ones who understand their audiences better. Also, know, you know, they'll sometimes ask. I mean, I worked with Stephen Baldwin. Um, on Midnight Clear, and Stephen was was terrific to work with, and a, and gave a great performance. And uh, I was impressed and and pleasantly surprised by he would say, "What what lens are we shooting? You know, what size lens?" So that he would know how close the camera was going in on him, um, and that informed some of his acting choices. Because you know, again, when when you know the camera is closer on you, uh, you you can you know you you can be less expressive. Um, with your facial expressions because uh, you know the camera's picking up on more and maybe if you do something more exaggerated it'll it'll read um, much worse but when you're in a wider shot you want to be a little bit more expressive if the camera picks on some uh, picks up on some of those things so a good actor uh, you know oftentimes knows you know where the camera is and where the lighting is and will play to that light and play to that angle do you make a distinction between an establishing shot and a master shot I mean I sometimes see movies today where it seems like they've established the room and they use that shot instead of what we would consider a traditional master shot and they keep cutting back from their close-ups to this really wide yeah that that's uh you know that depends on the style i mean i i i uh i have actually started to like establishing shots a little bit more an establishing shot tends to be the definition tends to be just a like for instance the exterior of a building and then you, and then now we're inside the building and we're having a conversation. So, you know, you wouldn't go back to the exterior of the building after, once the scene was was going because you can't see the actors. Um, but like you said, sometimes two actors might be might be standing in the middle of the city, and you'll have this wide shot where you get the entire street, and then you can see the actors kind of in the corner of the screen, and then you move in for your for your master, which is where you see the t- the two actors in the shot, and then you move in for close-ups. And like you said, yeah, it's true that there are some, you know, some some filmmakers now are are you know kind of going back to that uber wide shot. Um, and I don't know. I mean, uh, sometimes there's a reason for it. For instance, maybe you're trying to show that the actors are kind of the characters are uh, are you know facing the whole world. Maybe they're you know you're trying to uh, emphasize just the the landscape um, to remind the, the the audience where they are, to remind the audience maybe of the scope of the story, the scope of the location. Um, a lot of times, I think it's it's just a trick. You know, it's just a you know it's just a bell and whistle kind of thing where the director wants to be hip um, or interesting for 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 some random reason. Um, but I'm I'm actually becoming a fan of some of those shots sometimes because again they they can show um, you know sometimes making the actors or the characters smaller. Uh, can have an emotional impact. Well, you put a great reframe on that for me because uh, I often think that it's just because they use the establishing shot as their master and didn't think to to do a tighter master, uh, you know, to cut back and forth from. You know, they, 
So uh, I've, I've more or less looked at it as an error. But you, but no, you, you, you've given me. Yeah, uh, it's very. I, I can. I, I. It's very rarely a mistake. Um, sometimes it's a function of budget. I mean, I, well, I that, certainly, sure. you know, experience that where on you know because my films are low have been lower budget so far. So um, a lot of times to save time and money, you, you. Uh, you know, you, you you cut down on the number of angles that you shoot, or the number of uh, of of you know of uh, close you know I'm sorry of distances. Uh, so a lot of times they do what's called um, you know kind of a, a a double master, where instead of doing a one master from the side and then two close ups, uh, you shoot um, you know because usually your master is more straight on, uh, and then the close-ups, you move the cameras to the sides to get the actors. And a lot of times, you'll if you're running low on time or money, you skip that master shot that's from the side, and you just do some, um, some like, you basically go to the side already. For instance, let's say it's two actors talking, and let's say we're talking about Christy and Kevin. So we're going to get Christy's angle. Well, instead of having a master shot, we just shoot a wide shot on Christy's angle. And so that, be, and then and then when we're on Kevin, we shoot a wide shot there too. So that becomes, um, you know, our 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 master. Um, we have kind of two masters, and they're not they're, they're not true masters. They're a little bit more of a um, just a wider version of the angle that, it, that that you'll be on the actors when you get close up. If that makes any sense. So that it that does. just kind of a lot for allows you to skip one one big setup. And are they, and then when they're framed, are they framed off center? I mean, when you say wide, I mean, I'm doing them. Yeah, for, so, so picture, the, picture that you're in a room and the two actors are standing up against a wall facing each other. So they're, they're you know, parallel to the wall. Um, their, their bodies are perpendicular, okay? So mm-hmm. uh, the typical master would be you'd go to the other side of the room and you'd shoot them so that, they're both in frame. Christy would be on the left. Kevin would be on the right. Um, they're facing each other, so uh, you know her back is to the left side of the frame, and his back is to the right side of the frame. So that's your master. You can see them both perfectly. They're both equal. Um, they're, they're, you know, they're both. Uh, you know, you can see the whole room at once. Well, if you didn't have time to light it that way, because it requires a big lighting setup, masters obviously require the most light because they're the widest, and so you have to light most of the room. Instead of doing that, you'd go to the left side of the room uh, now because you're, you're going to capture Kevin, who's on the right side of the room. So you go to the left side of the room, and you just shoot a wider shot. So yes, Kevin is, is now featured, and we're, we're not necessarily seeing the front of Christy, and Christy kind of becomes more, you know, more of the, the uh, you know, she's not the focus of, of the shot, but you can still see her much more prominently um, uh, than w- when you're doing your close-ups. So and you can see more of the room. So it just becomes, you know, you, you and, and now once, once you're done with that shot, you're just moving in closer as opposed to, you know, turning around the whole lighting setup, if that makes sense. It does, it does. I appreciate that very much. Thank you. So that's a good, I mean, it is, that is a very good tip for, for you know, independent filmmakers or, or high school students or whatever it is when you don't have that kind of money or time to just, you know, say, look, I'm, I'm instead of having three setups, I'm going to have two setups. They're just going to be from different, you know, they're just going to be, you know, because a setup is when you, um, you know, arrange all the lighting in a, one particular direction. Um, and so 
you know, having the t- going with the kind of the two mini masters as opposed to one wide master can oftentimes save you time and money. Well, I, I think that one of the the, the difficulties for uh, low budget people or the high school people or, or the people that don't have money to to make their projects is the they don't necessarily many of them I can't speak for um, seem to not know that they have to light each scene separately or each shot separately. I mean, right, you know, right. you, you'll see the same lighting, but the actors now the cameras now move, but the lighting hasn't featured. Right person and so so you see all these different kinds of um we have about 10 minutes left and there's a couple of questions from the chat room that i'd like to be able to ask you and um i'm really enjoying this and and certainly i, I do want to continue it with you and continue, even exploring the kind of nuts and bolts we're doing right now but i i also had wanted to ask you uh, in terms of theme and in terms of how the movie achieves you know the notion of pacing because different movies are paced differently and there are movies that and, and I don't mean something that's slow and draggy, you know, and, and, and mm-hmm. just, you know, but I mean, some movies move slowly and some movies move, you know, are high paced. Some movies uh, like 24, you know, seems to go by pretty quick and another show may seem to go by in an hour and a half, you know. Sure. And it's it's not, and I don't mean it as a, you know, as a deficit. It's not, it's not, they're not, it's not a mistake that they're making. They've definitely sure. The pace, and and so I'd like to address that too. And I don't know if we'll have time now, um, but that's something for you to think about while I ask you these questions from the chat room, if you don't mind. Um, first off, I just want to say that uh, this person writes, "Wow, this is awesome!" Because I am going through this very experience for a two minute short I'm working on, and color, and trying to get the feel for the storyline, and then asks, "When it comes to video editing, is color editing specifically for touch-ups for what the camera lacks?" And I think I think this came from you said you were doing color correction. Yes. Um, yeah, color correction is um, when first of all it's it, what you shot and wh- when you worked on it in the um, in the computer. For instance, you shoot on your raw footage whether, uh, in your raw stock, whether it's film or or video. Your raw uh, footage you, that's, you're not editing that you're editing a computer capture of that footage because obviously you're not going to be cutting up your your uh, you know your actual um, film uh, right away you want to you want to save that for when you when, when you've already made your decisions so let's say you're shooting on film and you um, are in the edit bay you're shooting a computer capture of that film then when you're done editing um, it spits out this long edit decision list. It's called an EDL, and it basically uh, you give that to the to the uh, you know to the the guys in the film lab, and they look at the literal the statistics of you know which frame you you know you you chose to to cut on, and then they cut the film from there. Well, you've been looking at a computer capture, which obviously doesn't have quite the same level of quality on it. So when you go to the film. Um, or when you go to the uh, the HD, or when you go to the actual red footage, now it looks a little different. It's it's crisper, it's brighter, and oftentimes then you have to make different decisions. Oh well, I didn't realize it looked that bright, so um, I need to maybe tone it down a little bit, or or uh, you know I need to um, you know fill in some of those gaps. So uh, color correction involves first of all just simply um, kind of bumping up what you've been working with for the past three months, you know, in the editing room. Um, and seeing it a little bit brighter and crisper, and then making decisions based on that. But oftentimes, yes, it is actually filling in some mistakes. For instance, uh, let, me, let me give you the best example. Um, I shot a scene 
um, a, an outdoor scene at a church. Um, at, you know, it was a church potluck in, in What If. Uh, the first half of the scene when we were shooting, it was, uh, the, the clouds were covering the sun, and it was even drizzling at, at times, um, which is actually good for lighting because it, it, it just it, it, you know, softens a little bit. Well, then the clouds went away, the rain stopped, and now it's bright. So we had to, you know, cover the lights, and we had to, you know, we had to put a put a you know a scrim over the, you know, to kind of protect the sun from the from the actors so that it wasn't too bright. Well, no matter how much you do that, it's still going to look a little bit different. Um, and so you essentially do what you do in Photoshop, like when you're making a pic, you know, when you're taking a picture, and you get on your computer and you make some of these adjustments. You do the same thing with film or with uh, with video. Is you okay, you know, you, you want to make a uniform look for the whole scene. So, um, you know, the stuff that was shot in the first half of the day that was shot under clouds um, is going to have a slightly different look than when, when, the, when the clouds were gone. So, you know, you have to bump up the brightness a little bit. You have to fill in some of those gaps. You have to adjust some of the coloring. So, um, you know, for the most part, if your cinematographer was good, you're not having to, to, to correct too many sins. But for the, you know, there are certain things that you just couldn't control when you're on the set, and so you have to make a little, you know, a few adjustments. Now, one other level of that, and I know this is a long answer, but you take a look at a movie like um, uh, Oh Brother, We're Out Thou, or I'm sorry, Oh Brother, We're Out Thou, where they specifically wanted, you know, a yellowish, um, you know, old-timey, old-fashioned look for scenes from the, you know, from a particular time period. Um, you know, for instance, in What If, when I, when I wanted, like I said, I wanted the scenes in the office to be, have a little bit more of a blue tint to them, a little bit more of a cold, a cold feel. So that means we're going to be bump, we're going to be taking what the cinematographer shot, which was more neutral, um, because we want to have latitude in terms of how far we go in the editing room. So we're going to maybe just bring out the blues a little bit more. We're going to, um, to kind of, Maybe even add a slight layer of 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 uh, a particular color to it, almost like we're working with a, a new um, a lens or a new uh, a new gel. Um, you know, putting on a certain layer of focus to it or lack of lack thereof. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do in the editing room that are creative based, and a lot of things that you're doing that are actually technically based because you're make, you're, you're correcting a mistake. So I know that's a long answer to the question, but there's 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 so many different reasons why you make color corrections. So I wanted to make sure we covered them. Well, don't feel that it was too long because the, this asker says, "Great, this is answering my question to the T." Thank you. Oh, good. Well, so, <laughs> I'm glad. And I think you took out the other question as well uh, when it comes to that. Now, a, a person says that they're using Premiere Pro to edit their raw video on on their current project. So uh, that's a a bit of forthcoming information I think about the in terms of editing software. Yeah. There's a, there's different kinds of editing software. I'm not familiar with all of them, and I, I, I make it a point to not cloud my brain too much with some of the technical stuff because um, I'm, I'm just not as good at it. Um, but they all accomplish tech, you know, te- they tend to accomplish the same thing. Uh, just, it's just a matter of what your editor's used to or what some of the post-production guys are used to, and you just make sure, need to make sure everyone's on the same page. Awesome. Uh, that is that's fantastic. And, you know, and and uh, the listeners in the chat room are enjoying this. I'm enjoying this. We've got about three minutes remaining. Um, Dallas, I'm I'm going to throw it to you to just say, you know, in terms of wrapping up the kind of discussion we've had on creating the look and wardrobe and the choices, uh, I'll give you the final word for the kind of like the last three minutes, uh, rather than trying to ask a question of you and uh, <laughs> and then and then hope that. Um, and then hope that uh, yeah, we can continue this in, in other conversations in the future. Uh, I'm putting you back on the spot there, but 
Well, absolutely. Well, I, you know, one of the things that happened, happened to me is in the last couple of years is I, I realized that the um, kind of the pride that I took in not being a visual filmmaker uh, was a little bit misplaced. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of said, you know, look, I'm a more character-driven guy, so I'm not going to be obsessed with, um, you know, the, the, the technical side of things. Uh, that's not my bag. And, and it, it was to my detriment. Um, and I, I decided, you know, I want to become, um, again, I'm never going to be Michael Bay. I'm never going to be, um, you know, Martin Scorsese in terms of his, you know, obsession with, with you know, uh, you know the kind of the, the, the ma- his mastery of the technical side of the f- of filmmaking. However, I can certainly do a better job of matching the visuals to the story. And so one of the first things that you do when you want to be, get better at that is simply just start watching tons and tons of movies um, and, and, and looking specifically for the kinds of movies that you want to make. So again, you know, if you're, if, if you're you know, more of a romantic comedy guy, watch the best romantic comedies of all time and, and pay attention to um, what they did to match the storyline or what they did to match the emotion. Uh, you know, romantic comedies tend to be a little bit more uniform, but, um, but you could, you know, t- t- take a look at, at the movies that, you know, match the theme of what you're trying to say and, and don't try to necessarily rewrite the entire rule book. You know, take, take what you can learn from them and then apply your own, your own feel to it. On the other hand, there's also something very much to be said for watching movies from other genres and stealing some of the best things about them. You know, so, look, I'm not a film noir guy, um, but I can learn from some of the, the rules of that game and say, okay, you know, you know, there's a scene that I'm shooting in this movie that's much more dark and much more sad or much more intense, and, uh, you know, I didn't see a scene like that in Sleepless in Seattle, or, for example, or something like that. Um, and so, you know, if I want to kind of have a good idea of how to maximize the emotional uh, content of this scene and make sure that it really comes across, I'm going to use tricks from some of the filmmakers or some of the uh, types of films that specialized in this particular type of theme or type of tone. So, you know, you can uh, sometimes a romantic comedy director or writer can learn something from, um, you know, a movie like uh, The Third Man, you know, with, uh, with Orson Welles and say, you know, look, that was a darker film uh, throughout, but I can maybe, you know, copy or borrow some of those techniques to apply to this particular scene. Um, so it's, it's really just a matter of focus and a matter of, of, of what part of the filmmaking process you've decided to study and what you're going to look into and, and then, you know, making sure that your Netflix queue or the movies you're getting from Blockbuster or whatever um, are, are geared towards that particular moment in your filmmaking path um, and, and what, you're, what you're gearing towards. Um, it's just a matter of you know, making sure that your movie-making time and your, your journey is targeted and that it's intentional and that you're making choices ba- uh, in terms of what movies you watch based on a particular thing you're trying to learn. Oh, that is awesome, and we really are out of time. And, I, and I'm going to direct the listener to go to your biography page at my website, uh, to to read to go to your blog and to go to your official website and to uh, to check out all the things that you have. Yeah, and I talk about all these things, you know, all the different parts of filmmaking uh, from each day of the set on whatifmovie.wordpress.com. There you go. Um, where we talked about each of those things. You know, there's probably about so far I think there's 23 different video blogs. 
Fantastic. Dallas, thanks so much. Well, uh, I hope to have you back real soon, and we'll announce when and if, what if, uh, you're going to be back very shortly. And uh, and have a fabulous day. Thank you. And there's thanks. Uh, great show. Thanks from the chat room. Uh, we sure appreciate it. Absolutely. Anytime. All right. Uh, later. Uh, that was uh, Mr. Dallas Jenkins, the director of What If, Kevin Sorbo, Christy Swanson. She'll be a guest coming up next week. Uh, and remember, you can become a member of the Rex Sykes Movie Beat Facebook group and fan page by uh, checking that out. Rex Sykes Movie Beat, that's BT on Twitter. Everybody have a fabulous day. Make your movies, complete your projects. Until we meet the next time, that is a wrap. <laughs>